Thank God it's Thursday, right? Thank God it's Thursday. Tomorrow we can thank God it's Friday, but today we thank God for Thursday. Specifically, we thank God for those events that happened on Thursday night before Jesus' crucifixion on Friday. This is the week that changed the world, the most pivotal week in the history of the world. What happened on that Thursday night? This is Jesus' last night with his friends before his death. It's his last meal before his death. It's his last opportunity to teach, to give his disciples some final words before he goes to the cross. You can think of the words Jesus spoke that night as a kind of last will and testament to his disciples on the eve of his death. How does Jesus spend his time with his disciples on that night? He spends it feasting with them and fellowshipping with them. The upper room, especially in John's account, and obviously different gospel writers have different emphases, but in John's account, it's especially about feasting and fellowship, or free feasting and friendship. John chapter 13 especially twines together feasting and friendship. So let's look at each of these. Think about this. Before we eat, what do we typically do? Before we eat, we usually wash our hands, or at least that's what your mom told you to do, right? You're supposed to wash your hands. In this case, Jesus washes their feet. Why wash their feet before a meal? This foot washing, like the meal, becomes a pointer to what Jesus is going to do the next day on the cross. This is a symbolic action. Obviously, foot washing was a job that was usually done by the lowest ranking person in the room, usually some kind of servant or slave would have this task, but there was no slave present. None of the disciples were willing to stoop that low. They had still not learned the lessons Jesus had been teaching them all along the way about the link between humility and glory, the link between service, sacrificial service, and glory. And so now Jesus is going to show them in a new way what his ministry is all about. They really haven't gotten it now Jesus is going to do something else to help them understand this. And so during their supper, Jesus got up. He laid aside his outer robe and tied a towel around his waist. Think about what's happening here. Jesus gave up his robe. That's the clothing of a king, a royal garment. And he took an apron. He took a towel. That is the clothing of a slave. And then he proceeds to wash the disciples' feet. He is among them as a king who serves. This is the most high God stooping and lowering himself. This is God on his knees. It's really amazing when you think about it. And what John says about it, John's commentary on this, is absolutely astounding. John tells us in verse 3, Jesus did this because the Father had given all things into his hands. In other words, Jesus serves not in spite of the authority that is his, but because he possesses that authority. Because he has ultimate strength, ultimate power, he can serve. See, for Jesus, the authority to rule and the responsibility to serve go together. Jesus serves from a position of strength. It's an expression of his strength. Jesus' action, washing the disciples' feet, does not veil his power as God in the flesh. It does not veil his power as the only begotten Son of the Father. Rather, this action expresses 
his divine power, his divine sonship. This action reveals what his deity is all about, what it means to be God. It's really, you could say, a parable of the gospel. Because on the cross, Jesus will stoop in lowliness and in humility to wash us clean, not with a towel, but with his blood. See, again, this foot washing pre-enacts the gospel. It portends his impending death. It is a sign of things to come in the next 24 hours. Thursday points to Friday. Monday, Thursday, and Good Friday are part of the same story. Further, John tells us this took place during dinner, the feast of Passover. And Jesus is going to use this occasion to transform the Passover meal, the greatest old covenant meal, into his new covenant feast, what we call the Lord's Supper or the Eucharist or communion. Now, John, unlike the other three Gospels, does not give us a lot of details about the meal itself and particularly how Jesus transformed the Passover into the Lord's Supper. But here's something really important. When you picture this scene, when you picture in your mind Jesus teaching the disciples in John chapter 13, 14, 15, and 16. When you picture what's happening in these chapters, you should picture all of it happening around a table. All of this happens at a table. All the teaching Jesus gives in this chapter is table talk. You may be familiar with Martin Luther's table talk. Basically, Martin Luther would teach his students around the table, and eventually they started to scribble down notes on what um, Dr. Luther was, was teaching, and it became known as Luther's table talk. Well, that really comes from Jesus, who taught his disciples around a table. All of this teaching happens in the context of a meal. We're not in a classroom, we're at a table. And it's really interesting to to consider, meals are often turning points in scripture. See, we Christians, we talk about how we're we're people of the book, right? We're, we're, We're people of the book, yes, we are. But we are also people of the table. We are people of the table as well. Meals are so important, so important in scripture. The Bible begins and ends with a meal. A lot of times we'll point out that the Bible begins and ends with a wedding. That's exactly right. It tells you how important marriage is to understanding the the whole story of Scripture. But the, the Bible also, the whole story that Scripture tells, begins and ends with a feast. In the Garden of Eden, Adam and his wife were given access to every tree in the garden, including the tree of life, only one tree was temporarily off limits. That was the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That would be given to them. They remained faithful, and they would be promoted to a higher level of kingly reign, and then they could partake of that tree as well. Of course, we know that didn't happen. They ended up eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil prematurely before it was granted to them. And so they brought sin and death into the world. But it's really significant to understand this. The fall took place through food. Instead of dining at the Lord's table, they chose Satan's table. They chose communion with Satan over communion with God. That's what happens in Genesis chapter 3. We were created to eat all the food in the world, except one thing in the very beginning. And even that was going to be granted to us eventually. We fell by eating the one thing in the world prohibited to us. That's what we did in our first parents, Adam and his wife. But God, in his grace, promised a restoration. He promised redemption. And the sign of that redemption was given through food at the table. Again and again, God gives his promise and seals his promise of redemption to his people with a meal. 
And so in Genesis chapter 14, when Abraham goes out and defeats the pagan kings to rescue Lot, Melchizedek, this mysterious figure identified as a king of righteousness and the priest of Salem, comes out to celebrate with Abraham and gives him bread and wine. The bread and the wine seal the victory that had been won. They celebrate the victory that had been won and, of course, point to a future victory that will be won when Abraham's descendants take possession of the whole promised land. Indeed, God's promise to Abraham about the land, the holy land, the land of promise, is couched in Edenic terms. It's really interesting. When God speaks to Abraham about the land he's promised to him, he says it's going to be like the garden of the Lord, a new Eden. It's going to be a land flowing with milk and honey. The land will be edible. The land will be full of free food for God's people. The promised land really is a promised banquet. It will be a great feast for God's people, a place of feasting. Go a little further in Israel's history. God gave Israel the Passover on the eve of their redemption out of slavery in Egypt. God establishes the Passover meal. What do the Israelites do? They partake of the sacrificial lamb. They eat the sacrificial lamb together. And the blood from that lamb is put on the doorpost. And it keeps the angel of death at bay. So their houses are passed over. The angel of death passes over them. And of course then the Passover becomes an annual ritual an annual memorial, a way of reminding God, calling upon God to keep his promise, to bring an even greater exodus and a greater deliverance in the future. See, every time Israel celebrated the Passover, it pointed backwards and forwards in history. Every Passover meal not only celebrated the original exodus, it also pointed to a climactic exodus still to come. Go a little further into scripture when prophets like Isaiah describe the future coming kingdom so often they describe it in terms of a banqueting table they describe it as a great feast and how the nations will come from north south east and west to come enjoy this bounty Isaiah's got a beautiful picture of this feast in Isaiah chapter 25 the great bounty that God will put upon the table for his people to feast upon to celebrate See, according to the prophets, the kingdom of God is a feast. The kingdom of God, when it arrives in history, will be a great banquet. The kingdom of God is a party. And when that kingdom finally arrives in the ministry of Jesus, you see this. See, even in Jesus' ministry, prior to that Thursday night in the upper room, Jesus was known for eating and drinking. This is one of the most characteristic, defining things about Jesus' ministry. His eating and drinking, his feasting. Oh, sure, Jesus did take a 40-day fast. That's, uh, we derive the 40-day season of Lent from that 40-day fast that Jesus took. But more often than not in the Gospels, Jesus is eating and drinking. If he's with a great multitude and they have nothing to eat, he miraculously provides a meal so that nobody goes hungry. If he's at a big party and they run out of wine, he will miraculously make more. He'll make a great abundance and it will be the best wine anybody has ever had. Jesus is accused of being a glutton and a drunkard. You go back to the Old Testament law, glutton, sons who became gluttons and drunkards were supposed to be stoned. The incorrigible son, the, the son who is a glutton and a drunkard. They're saying Jesus is worthy of the death penalty when they say he's a glutton and a drunkard. Now that was a false charge when they said Jesus is a glutton and a drunkard, but it was a plausible charge. Because why? Because Jesus was celebrating at a table so often. 
He came eating and drinking. Indeed, one of the most controversial aspects of his ministry was his choice of dining companions. Jesus ate and drank with sinners, and that provoked the wrath of the Pharisees. Uh, You could legitimately say a major reason why Jesus was executed on a cross is because he ate and drank with all the wrong people. Jesus' choice of dining companions was scandalous to the Pharisees because grace is always scandalous to the self-righteous. And Jesus' meals were a sign and embodiment of his grace. He befriended sinners. He welcomed them to his table. Jesus' meals did not merely symbolize the kingdom. They enacted the kingdom. They embodied the kingdom. They manifested the presence of the kingdom in the world, in history. See, again, the kingdom of God truly is a feast. It is no accident that Jesus shares a meal with his disciples around a table on the night before his death. On the eve of his crucifixion, what is Jesus going to do? The only thing he can do that makes sense for him to do is to share a meal with his disciples. And it's in that upper room really where the story of eating in scripture comes to its great turning point. The disciples certainly did not fully realize it at the time, but that meal they shared with Jesus in the upper room anticipated his victory, the victory he was about to accomplish on their behalf, a victory cleverly disguised as defeat, but a victory nevertheless. The meal they share points to that. But not only is their time around the table, the climactic meal to this point in history, of course, pointing ahead even to that final meal, the end of history, that final wedding supper of the Lamb when Jesus comes at the last day in glory, that meal in the upper room is a sign that the fall is being reversed, that the fall is being reversed with an exaltation. It's a sign of what is to come. It's a sign of the shape and character of Jesus' kingdom. It's a sign that the kingdom is here. But there's something else we need to see about that meal, something that I think further unpacks its meaning. Think about this. What happens around a table ordinarily? What happens around a table ordinarily? Uh, You've experienced it tonight. I know you've experienced it tonight because I had a really hard time getting you all to be quiet (laughs) so we could start the service. Tables are places of fellowship. We not only share food, we share our lives, we share ourselves, we share love. The table is the place where love is manifested. It's the place where food becomes love. It's the place where fellowship happens. In that upper room, on that Thursday night, Jesus gave his disciples a new commandment. He gave them a new commandment around the table because he is forming them into a new community. And this new community will be defined by this new commandment and by this new meal. The table is a place where love is experienced. The table is a place of knowing and being known. The table is a place of coming to know and coming to be known. We become like family when we eat together regularly, when we come together at the table. We share our lives, we share ourselves. A shared table creates a shared culture, a shared bond, a shared life. Jesus wants his disciples to love as he has loved. That's the essence of the commandment he gives. He wants his disciples to love as he has loved. And one thing that will mean is shared table fellowship and friendship. How did Jesus love his followers? 
He ate and drank with them. How are we to love one another? A big part of it is feasting together. Feasting produces fellowship. Feasting produces friendship. Later that night, still seated around the table, Jesus will call his disciples his friends. Which again is really astounding to think about. We know who Jesus is as God in the flesh. The fact that he would call these men, these sinful, struggling often ignorant men, his friends. It's just astounding. But in John 15, he says, you are my friends. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends for all I have heard from my father I have made known to you. See, the table is a place of friendship. The table is a place where secrets are shared. Tables are places where we come to know the master's secrets. Tables are places where friendships are forged. It's the place where the seeds of community are planted and grow. That's what happens at the table. Let me unpack this a little bit further because I think it's so, so important. Think about this fellowship, this friendship that takes place at the table. We live in a time and a place, we live in an era where many people experience excruciating loneliness. Families are broken, institutions are broken, our culture is broken, we're economically rich but we are relationally poor. That's really the state of our culture. Uh, Years ago, Robert Putnam wrote the book, Bowling Alone, to capture this loneliness problem. You know, bowling had always been a social thing, and then all of a sudden, at a certain point in American history, people started bowling alone, and it was this weird thing. Why would you go bowl alone? It's supposed to be a social event. Well, I think if you're writing a similar book today, you might want to title it Eating Alone, because that's really what's happened in our culture. In general, meals are supposed to be social events. The table becomes the tie that binds. But today, so often people eat alone. Uh, The number of families that never have family dinner together, that never get the whole family together for a dinner, it's, it's shockingly high, astoundingly high. We're isolated from one another. Uh, Friendlessness is one of the great crises of our age. Now, if you ask why is this, a lot of different answers are given. Uh, Some people will blame technology. Uh, Back when TV was first becoming a thing, when TV was first becoming popular, uh, T.S. Eliot made the point that um, TV is a medium of entertainment. This is how he put it. It's a medium of entertainment that allows millions of people to laugh at the same joke at the same time and yet still be lonely. And we can all be laughing, millions of people at the same joke at the same time on TV, and yet we're not connected in any kind of real way. We're lonely. I would say the problem is even worse with the Internet. We can be virtually connected with hundreds, even thousands of people, and yet have no real connections in our lives at all. And I would say technology can pose certain threats to community. Uh, We need to make sure we never settle for fake virtual communities. We need the real thing, even in the age of the Internet. There's no substitute for in-person interaction for handshakes and hugs and face-to-face meetings. Technology does pose certain threats or challenges to community. Now, I would say we shouldn't go too far in blaming technology because technology can always be used for good or bad. So I don't think the whole reason for the breakdown in community that we see around us is due to technology, but it's something to, to take note of, to be aware of. 
Here's something else people point to. Sometimes we make excuses for ourselves. We're really good at coming up with excuses for why we don't have any close friendships or why we lack community. I've seen personality tests work this way. Okay, personality tests, obviously, they're so popular. Uh, I think personality tests have very minimal value. I won't say they have no value, but very minimal value. Uh, but I would say this. While they have very minimal value, they can do a great deal of harm. And I've seen this happen. Suppose somebody takes a personality test and the test comes back, oh, I'm an introvert. Okay, you probably knew that about yourself, but the test comes back, you're an introvert. Well, all of a sudden, I've labeled myself a certain way, and now that label kind of dictates how I'm going to live. I'm an introvert, and so now I've got an excuse for ignoring people and neglecting community that really I need, and neglecting others who really need me. Or I find out I'm an extrovert. Okay, well now I'm an extrovert, so now I've got an excuse for always making myself the center of attention and demanding that others always give me the spotlight. And that can destroy community just as much. Uh, I've seen people use their personality type as a kind of scapegoat for their relationship problems. They explain away their relationship problems by talking about their personality type. The reality is no personality type can give you a free pass to opt out of community. Uh, no, no personality type can give you a free pass to explain away any relationship struggles you might have. Not at all. Here's another issue I've seen. Uh, you know, we live in a very therapeutic culture, what's been called the therapeutic age. I think sometimes our obsession with therapy can hinder community. Now again, as with these other things, I won't say it's all bad. Some therapy or some counseling is good and certainly helps people. Uh, quite a bit of it can be very useful. Uh, but, you know, we live in what has been called a therapeutic age because therapy has kind of taken over. And, and what has been called the therapeutic mindset can actually be very destructive when it comes to community, when it comes to relationship building and friendship building, because it can make us very self-absorbed. It can make us very curved in on ourselves, and it ends up cutting us off from other people. We get so obsessed with ourselves and so absorbed with our, into ourselves. You become constantly focused on your own emotion, your own feelings, uh, your own needs, that you really struggle in relationships. Therapy can feed a kind of narcissism, a kind of obsession with the self. Look, the reality is there can be lots of reasons why we struggle with community and why we struggle with friendship, but it really comes down to one thing, and that one thing is not going to surprise you. That one thing is sin. It is sin that gets in the way. It is sin that cuts us off from one another. If you are lazy, or selfish, or bitter, or impatient, or petty, you will never experience the kind of community Jesus wants for you. If you're insecure, if you're overly anxious, if you're easily offended, you're going to struggle relationally. And you've got to deal with those flaws in yourself if you want to have the, the kind of deep relationships that you desire and that God calls you to. You've got to get over yourself. You, you've got to deal with yourself first. And you've got to let other people do this. I'm not saying you figure it all out yourself and then you go have relationships. It's actually in relationship that you discover these things about yourself. But you've got to be willing to let other people point out your blind spots. We need to remember the picture of love that Jesus has drawn for us here. 
It's seen in his act of foot washing. That is the symbol of love in this passage. And it shows us love is not just a warm, fuzzy feeling. No, love is hard work. Love is a matter of sacrificial service. And love can take many different forms, many different shapes. Love can mean correcting others and accepting correction. In fact, if you read this whole passage, you find one of the things that happens that night, even as Jesus is talking about uh, this love, this love commandment, is Jesus has to rebuke Peter. More than once, Jesus has to rebuke Peter. He rebukes other disciples around the table that night. But Peter gets singled out. Peter has to be rebuked for his arrogant confidence and his misunderstanding. When Jesus corrects Peter, that's love. Love is all about iron sharpening iron. Love speaks the truth even when it's hard and it's going to hurt. Love includes tough love and, and, and disciplinary love. Love is not tolerance. That's how people in our culture today think of love. If I love you, I'm going to tolerate anything you want to do. Whatever. Whatever you want to do, that's fine. No. Love is not tolerance. In fact, love will not tolerate whatever might destroy the beloved. Here's the reality. Everybody says they want community, but too many of us want it on our own terms. We want community, but we want it to be easy. We want community, but we want community without having to serve or sacrifice or wash feet. We say we want community, but then we find out community means bringing a meal to a person at an inconvenient time or having a long conversation with a difficult and awkward person or being happy for people who are getting married and having a baby when you really wish those things were happening in your life. See, we want community to be easy, but it never is. We want to have all our own relational needs met by others, but we don't want any demands put upon us. And it simply cannot work that way. Remember, love is defined by what the Bible teaches, not by what we feel like doing. Love is defined by God's law, not by our emotions. Love might mean a wife submitting to her husband, even when it's really hard to do so. Love might mean a husband sacrificing for the good of his wife, even when it'd be easier to act selfishly. Love means bearing the burdens of others, even if that costs us precious time and money. Love means being kind, even when our patience has been tested to the limit. Love means being generous and hospitable, even when we might rather be doing something else. Love means living as if people matter. Because people do matter. And we know that, but we don't always live like that. It's interesting to me how in moments of crisis, we recognize just how much people matter. You know, if you say you got a teenage kid that's uh, of driving age and you're, you're a parent and you get a phone call that tells you your 16-year-old has just been in a car accident. What happens? Find out your 16-year-old has been involved in a car wreck. The first thing you want to know is not the condition of the car. The first thing you want to know is not whose fault was it. The first thing you want to know is, was anyone hurt? How's my child? Is my child okay? Because we know in moments of crisis, that people matter more than cars and money. We know that in moments of crisis, but I'm afraid in ordinary day-to-day life, we often forget that people matter more than these other things. We have to live as if people matter. We have to remember that community is essential. It's essential because we're human and we were created for community. We were created in the image of the God who is himself a community, a father, son, and spirit, a community of sorts. 
So we're made for community, but community is not just essential to our humanity, it's also essential to our spirituality. It's not just that we were created for community, we're redeemed for community as well. Community is essential to our spiritual well-being. The reality is your faith cannot survive without community. Your faith cannot survive without Christian friendship and fellowship. One of the reasons that Peter stumbled that night and ended up denying Jesus is because he isolated himself from the other disciples. He tried to go it alone. He was cocky and arrogant, thought he could do it all on his own. And then he was humbled by a slave girl when she asked whether or not he was a disciple of Jesus. It's interesting to remember that earlier in Jesus' ministry, when he sent out his disciples, when he sent out the apostles on a preaching tour, he sent them out in twos. He sent them out two by two, not by ones, but by twos. Why? Because they would need each other to accomplish the mission. They would need one another to stay faithful. They would need the encouragement and support of each other. That's how it is in the Christian life. And I bet you've seen this. We've probably all known people who strayed and wandered from the faith, who fell away from the faith. So often, before someone strays from sound doctrine, they stray from the community. They get relationally isolated, and that leaves them vulnerable to apostasy. But see, your faith is not an individualistic pursuit. Your faith is not self-sustaining. Persevering in the faith is a group effort. Persevering in the faith is a community project. It takes a church to raise a Christian. It takes a church to keep a Christian faithful. All the images that God gives us in Scripture are organic and corporate. Think about how we're described in the Bible. We're described as a vineyard, not just one vine growing off by itself, but a whole collection of vines growing together. We're described as a flock and as a family. We are living stones being built together into a single temple. We are diverse members of a singular body. Many members, but all part of the same body. Or branches on a tree. One tree, many branches. The Christian life is described in these ways to show us how much we need each other. And that is why Jesus gathered his disciples at the table. Jesus gathered his disciples around a table to wash their feet, to teach them this new law, to feed them his new meal. And he does all of this because he wants to form them into a new kind of community defined by a new kind of love. That's what the upper room is about. That's what Monday Thursday is about. Maybe you've heard the joke, Jesus was most certainly the greatest miracle worker of all time because he had 12 close friends in his early 30s. That's impressive, right? That doesn't happen much. You know sometimes why older people will think back on their high school years or their college years as the best time of life? It's because that was the only time in life, really, when they had their need for community fulfilled, really fulfilled. They've gotten older, they've lost touch with people, they haven't continued to cultivate friendship and fellowship with others, they don't have any close friends anymore, and so they long nostalgically for the good old days when life was full of friendship. It should not be that way. Not for the people of God. The normal Christian life should be relationally rich. We should live lives of rich and full community. 
Because the truth is this, we need each other. We need to be for each other. We need to be there for each other. We need to learn to love one another, fulfilling this command that Jesus has given to us. We need to learn to love one another. We need to learn to live together in peace. The world today is very much against us. We need to be for each other. The world hates us, so let us love one another all the more. Before you ever get to this upper room, God has already commanded his people to love one another. You go back to the Old Testament, you already have commands to to love your neighbor, to, to love one another. That's there in the Old Testament. What do you have on that Thursday night that's new? You have a new pattern, a new example, a new model for love. And you have a new power for love as well. All of this is found in Christ himself. It's not just love one another. That is not the command. It's love one another like Christ. It's not enough to love one another. We must love as Jesus has loved us. And because Christ has loved us in this way, we can love one another in this way. Because Christ has laid down his life for us, we can lay down our lives for one another. Because Christ has died for us, we can die for one another. Because of the way Christ has loved us, we can love one another in this way. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.